not just about a Russian sphere of influence or where Ukraine fits in Europe, but it's also about domestic politics. And from the point of view of the Kremlin, it's also about regime survival. The Ukraine crisis is a power struggle between Ukraine and Russia. As one of the founding states of the Soviet Union, Ukraine had historically been an important part of the Russian sphere of influence. However, Ukraine is now on a course towards closer ties with Europe, rather than Russia. Ukraine desires to open its markets to the European Union and develop its economy, which was perceived by Russia as a huge threat to its own interests and Vladimir Putin's vision of a resurgent Russia. In March of 2014, after a popular uprising deposed Kremlin-backed Viktor Yanukovych, Russian forces invaded and occupied Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula and provoked an internal conflict using Russian-backed separatists in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region. Since then, relations between Ukraine, its western partners, and Russia have continued to deteriorate, and efforts to reach a diplomatic settlement have failed. Ambassador Stephen Pfeiffer is an affiliate of Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation and a non-resident fellow at Brookings Institution. He served as the ambassador to Ukraine and worked in embassies throughout Europe. Joining us today, Ambassador Pfeiffer. Good to be here. So we would like to begin a little bit by providing our listeners with some important context about the discussion we're about to have on Ukraine. So that said, what exactly is the conflict in Ukraine and how did it start? Well, let me just, uh, by background, just note that in Ukraine and Russia, you have two countries whose history culture, language have been intertwined going back hundreds of years. Uh, And when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, the peace of the Soviet Union, the peace of the Russian Empire that Russians, I think, missed most was the loss of Ukraine. So that's kind of the background point. But the current conflict really goes back to 2013, when Ukraine, under then-President Yanukovych, uh, was negotiating with the European Union an association agreement. And this would have been a free trade and actually a customs area, but the association agreement already also would have required Ukraine to change a number of its internal laws to bring them into conformity with uh, EU norms and standards. And it would have had a major impact on Ukraine. Uh, at the last moment, uh, beginning probably in the summer of 2013, the Russians begin to weigh in very hard against uh, completion of this agreement. And literally about a week before President Yanukovych was supposed to sign, uh, his government announced that it was delaying signature of the European Associ- Union Association Agreement. And that had a very negative impact with many in Ukraine who really wanted to see their country draw closer to European Union and the European standards. And so literally within hours after the announcement, you had the first demonstrations in Kyiv, uh, Center Maidan, Nezolezhnosti, that's Independent Square in central Kyiv. Uh, the demonstrations continued, and then about a week later, uh, the uh, Ukrainian police uh, broke up one of the demonstrations quite violently. And the next day, you had reportedly 500 to 700,000 people in the streets in protest. Now, those protests continued over the course of December and January, and they really morphed from a protest about the Yanukovych government's decision not to sign the EU Association Agreement into a broader protest against Yanukovych, his growing authoritarianism, uh, his efforts to really reduce political space within Ukraine, 
and his corruption. By, by some accounts, he stole billions of dollars from the Ukrainian treasury. That continued into February. And in February, at one point, uh, the Ukrainian government uh, used force. Uh, they, they had attacked the uh, my, the protests on the Maidan had been largely peaceful. There had been some areas where there had been a bit of violence, but on the Maidan, it had been largely peaceful. But including with uh, police snipers firing in the crowd, about 100 protesters were killed. And what that triggered was an overnight crisis. The German, French, and Polish por uh, foreign ministers came in to try to broker some kind of a solution. They did broker a, a settlement uh, between President Yanukovych and the opposition leaders. Uh, I'm not sure they could have sold that to the people in the streets who at that point really wanted to see Yanukovych gone. But they didn't really have a chance because Yanukovych signed the agreement and then he disappeared. And the next day, uh, the Ukrainian parliament, the Rada, uh, they uh, appointed an acting president and an acting prime minister. And those two individuals said their top foreign policy goal was to join the European, or it was to draw closer to Europe and to sign the European Union's association agreement. And I think at that point, Moscow sort of panicked. And then you saw the Russian action to seize Crimea. So you talked a little bit about the 2014 Ukrainian revolution. How has this led to the subsequent Russian invasion of the Crimean Peninsula, which was the sticking point that led to the current crisis in the Donbass region? Right. Well, within a couple of days after uh, the acting president, acting prime minister had declared their intention, uh, you had uh, what the Ukrainians called little green men begin seizing facilities, major crossroads in Crimea. They were clearly professional soldiers by the way they handled themselves and their weapons. They were Russian combat fatigues, but all of the identif identification patches had been removed. Uh, and very quickly, they, they seized Crimea. Now, uh, at one point, I think it was early in March of 2014, President Putin was asked, are they Russian soldiers? And he lied. He said, no. Uh, when they said, but they're wearing Russian combat fatigues, the reporter asked that. And Mr. Putin says, well, you can get those at any army surplus store anywhere in the post-Soviet space. Uh, about that, in addition to Russian special forces and troops that came in from Russia proper, there were already probably 10 to 15,000 Russian service personnel in Crimea by agreement with Ukraine, uh, because the Black Sea Fleet, a good portion of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, was based in Sevastopol and used other facilities on the Crimean Peninsula. And they had an agreement extending, I think, until 2047 to use those facilities. The Ukrainians also had a substantial military presence on the island, on the uh, peninsula, but they chose to stay in garrison. And I think there were several reasons for that, one of which was the Ukrainian government, I believe, wanted to make sure that if there was a conflict, it would be clear to the world that the Russians fired the first shot. Uh, second, I think there's quite a bit of pressure from the West on Ukraine not to do anything that might provoke a conflict. And third, at the time, the Ukrainian military's practice was enlisted personnel really served very close to their hometowns. So a large portion of the military personnel, or a large portion of the enlisted personnel in Crimea were from Crimea. And my guess is that Ukrainian commanders may not have had full confidence in how their troops would perform. So in any case, within a, a matter of days, Russian forces have seized Crimea. Uh, they quickly organize a referendum. Uh, and the referendum 
is, I regard very much a bogus referendum. It asks two questions. One, do you want to join Russia? Or two, do you want Crimea to revert back to its 1992 or 1993 constitution, which in effect made Crimea almost independent of Ukraine? Now, if you were content with Crimea remaining part of Ukraine under the constitutional arrangements in 2014, you, you had no box to check. Uh, so it really was a very biased referendum. Uh, there were reports that Russian reporters could vote by showing a Russian passport. Uh, there really was no confidence in the actual results. But uh, then you had this very Soviet-like number of 97% voted to join Russia. And within several days, uh, the Russian government moved illegally to annex Crimea. So that was sort of the Crimea portion. And, and had the Russians stopped there, uh, it would have been uh, a, a big problem. But it was really only later, when the conflict began in Donbass and eastern Ukraine, that you began to see, particularly uh, in Europe, but the West began to act uh, more forcefully. And you begin to see things like sanctions employed on Russia. After Russia's annexation of Crimea, the conflict has partly expanded to the Donbass region. And uh, where is the Donbass and what specific aspects of this region make it so important to Russian interests, especially after the international condemnation it faced after its invasion of Crimea? Well, the Donbass region, that refers to the uh, basin of the Don. It's, it, it's really the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts uh, that are at the very far eastern part of, the, uh, of Ukraine, uh, bordering up against Russia. Uh, and it um, used to be a fairly wealthy area. I mean, it was one of the industrial areas and probably one of the four or five richest areas uh, in the Soviet Union, although a lot of the industry there really is Rust Belt style. Uh, and, and so the economics of the area were much more difficult. But in any case, you know, within a few weeks after the Russians have seized and annexed Crimea, little green men begin showing up in Donbass. And this time, uh, you know, it's pretty clear early on that the leadership's coming from Russia, that funding's coming from Russia, and the Ukrainians conclude they can't do nothing this time. That they have to, they have to push back. They 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 have to fight, and so this conflict breaks out. Um, originally, it starts out fairly low intensity, but then um, the they're originally called separatists. Oh, I think it's very clear early on that, that it's, it's they're not really separatists. This is being organized by Russia. And there are, are Russian funding. Uh, the Russians are supplying some heavy weapons. You know, the so-called separatists claim that they are using captured weapons that they've captured from the Ukrainian military. But you begin to see kinds of weapons that have never been in the Ukrainian military's inventory. They, they've been only in the Russian inventory. And, and, and ammunition comes in uh, and such. And so this conflict begins in about April of 2014. Uh, originally, uh, the so-called separatists, really the Russians and their proxy forces, seemed to prevail. But by the summer, uh, the Ukrainians are actually making progress, pushing back and regaining the, some of the territory. Of course, then you had, uh, during that time, the, the tragic shootdown of the Malaysian airliner, which was done by Russian slash Russian proxy forces using a Russian-provided surface air missile. I actually think that was a mistake. I, I believe that they were shooting, they thought they were shooting down a Ukrainian military transport, uh, but they had every obligation to be absolutely sure before they fired that missile and killed nearly 300 people. 
but by August, in fact, the Ukrainians seem to be on the verge of success, uh, that they've compressed the, the Russian and the Russian proxy forces around the cities of Donetsk and Luhansk. And then in the middle of August, uh, the Russian army enters Ukraine uh, and really hammers the Ukrainian army. Uh, and so early September, uh, there's a uh, meeting in Minsk uh, in neighboring Belarus. They work out a ceasefire and, and a settlement. Uh, but by that point, um, Russian and the Russian proxy forces have regained a lot of the territory that they lost in July and August. Now, that September settlement never really takes hold. And in fact, the Russian and Russian proxy forces continue to chip away, gain more land. And you get to a situation by February of 2015 where it looks like uh, open warfare is going to break out again. And this is when, at a time when the Germans and the French, uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel and then French President Hollande, engage. They, they meet together with then President Poroshenko of Ukraine and President uh, Putin of Russia and broker what's called the Minsk II Agreement. And that's designed not only to stop the fighting, but by the end of 2015 to resolve the conflict and restore Donbass fully to Ukrainian uh, uh, sovereignty. Uh, but the first three elements of the agreement are a ceasefire within 96 hours, second, a withdrawal of heavy weapons away from the line of contact that divides Ukrainian in control of Ukraine and then the part of Ukraine that's no longer under government control. And then third, freedom for the organization and security and cooperation monitors to go anywhere, basically, to confirm that the first two conditions are being lived up to. But in fact, that never really happens. You never really get a full ceasefire. Uh, and it seems to me that there's a difference between how the Russians look at Donbass and how they look at Crimea. The Russians clearly wanted Crimea. They moved, you know, in days to annex it after their bogus referendum. In Donbass, they haven't made those moves. Now, they, they have issued Russian passports to hundreds of thousands of people still in Donbass, although about half the population of, of the occupied portion of Donbass has fled. Either they're internally displaced persons in Ukraine or they some have fled as refugees to Russia. But uh, the, the passports, uh, I think, have been done both with a view to Russian domestic politics, but also that is a tactic the Russians have used elsewhere then to give them the ability to claim that if they want to intervene military, they are intervening to protect Russian citizens. But it doesn't appear to me that the Russians actually want to annex Donbass. Uh, they want to use that as a mechanism to pressure the government in Kyiv to destabilize it, to disrupt it, to make it harder for it to do what it needs to do to build Ukraine as a success story. And the Russians, I think, are hesitant to try to annex the occupied part of Donbass because one, then Russia would have to bear the cost, which will be in the tens of billions of dollars, to rehabilitate the infrastructure and the housing and the industry that's been destroyed over the course of the last seven years. And this has been a fairly costly conflict. I mean, Crimea was virtually bloodless, uh, but nearly 14,000 people have been killed in the fighting around Donbass. And I don't believe the Russians want to bear the rehabilitation costs of Donbass. And also, when you look at the area now, most of the people that have fled have been sort of the younger workers. 
and a large portion of the population still in Donbass or the occupied portion of Donbass are retirees. So it's not a very promising area economically. So my own conclusion is the Russians don't want Donbass as they wanted Crimea, but they do want to use it at a, as a mechanism to put pressure on the government key. They can ratchet pressure up or they can ratchet down. We saw in April this year with the buildup, for example, how they ratcheted that pressure up. So it's in their view, it's a mechanism. So from backing the autocratic government of Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus to its failed attempt at a coup in Montenegro, Russia has worked to be a destabilizing actor in Europe for over half a decade now. So in what ways are Russia's actions in Ukraine, the Donbass, and Crimea indicative of a larger Russian strategy towards its neighbors to the West, especially those outside of the NATO security blanket? Yeah. I guess I would divide that question or the answer to that question really into two pieces. One is what the Russians want in the post-Soviet space is a sphere of influence. That is, they want friendly governments, they want neighbors that are open to Russian business, and they want countries that on big geopolitical questions, such as how far or how close they're going to go in relations with the European Union or NATO, to defer to Moscow's judgment on that. And that includes the post-Soviet space with, I think, three exceptions. Uh, I believe that in the Kremlin, they may not like it, but they do recognize that Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, the three Baltic states, which are now members of both the European Union and NATO, that they're sort of gone. But they don't want to see countries like Belarus or Georgia, and in particular Ukraine, follow that path. So they're doing things to maintain that sphere of influence, even against the the will of the countries. So you've got Russian-occupied areas in Ukraine, Crimea and Donbass. You go to Moldova, which is to Ukraine's west, and there's a Russian military force in Transnistria, the breakaway region of of Moldova. And you look down on Georgia, where there are two little statelets, South Ossetia and Apazia, which uh, are occupied by Russian military forces. They have declared independence. Russia and maybe five or six other countries in the world have recognized this as independent states, but the rest of the world does not. And, and so they're using, they're prepared to use military force to make it more difficult for these countries in the post-Soviet space to build relations with the West. And we're seeing, that, I think, that now in Belarus. Um, there's a second part to this, which is the uh, in the Kremlin, they look back at how Europe has changed since the end of the Cold War over the last 30 years. And they conclude that the way Europe has changed has largely disadvantaged Russian interests. They look at the enlargement of the European Union, they look at the enlargement of NATO, and and they see that as threatening their concept of Russian interest in Europe. Now, I was involved back when I was in the State Department and on a detail to the National Security Council in the 1990s of um, on the National Security Council staff, you know, we worked and tried to come up with arrangements that would not only allow enlargement of NATO, but also would reach out and engage engage Russia, including the NATO-Russia relationship. And the Russians never really put that much into it. Uh, so there was this effort. I, I think it failed. And now in the Kremlin, they have chosen to see the West, that's the United States and Europe, as adversaries. Uh, and, and that is one of the difficult defining issues that you have or the defining problems, I think, that we now have uh, in Europe. Looking more internally with Ukraine's situation 
2019, Volodymyr Zelensky was elected as the president of Ukraine. How has he responded to the conflict in the Donbass, and how is he different from the former president, Petro Poroshenko? Yeah, I think when Zelensky came to office, and I had a chance to be in Kiev and talk to some people pretty close to him back in uh, the fall of 2019, and it was very clear from those conversations that President Zelensky's number one goal was to end the fighting in Donbass. Again, although you had back in 2015 under the Minsk agreement brokered by the Germans and the French, a supposed ceasefire, you know, it wasn't a real ceasefire. I mean, there were exchanges of fire across the line of contact virtually on a weekly basis, sometimes on a daily basis. And you, know, and you had Ukrainian soldiers were getting killed on a regular basis. So it was very clear that for Mr. Zelensky, the number one goal was to end the fighting, get a real ceasefire, and then resolve the conflict in Donbass. And they recognized Crimea was a much harder problem. That was more for the future. Uh, and he made a number of efforts. I mean, he um, some local disengagements where Ukrainian forces pulled back. He agreed to a prisoner exchange. Uh, he accepted and reaffirmed uh, Ukraine's adherence to the Minsk II arrangements. He did a number of things which were actually controversial within Ukraine because they feared he might be going too far to try to extend an olive branch towards Russia. Uh, but in any case, it didn't work. Uh, there was a summit meeting that was held in December of 2019, uh, co-chaired by Chancellor Merkel and the current president of France, President Macron. Uh, Zelensky met with Putin. Uh, they agreed on a ceasefire um, again. Uh, they agreed on a prisoner exchange. You know, but on the really big questions, the core issues, the things like the future status of Donbass, the questions when local elections might take place, the question of when Ukraine would actually be able to regain sovereignty over Donbass, there was no progress of any of those issues. And, and so uh, there was an agreement for a follow-on summit uh, in sometime in the spring of 2020 that summit's never happened to this day. And, and, the, and the ceasefire really didn't take effect until the summer of 2020, where you actually had in the last five months of 2020, a, a, a real ceasefire where Ukrainian casualties dropped you know, to almost zero on a monthly basis. But of course, that, that ceasefire began uh, to uh, fray at the beginning of this year. And then we saw, of course, this dramatic Russian military buildup in April, where they put perhaps 100,000 troops on the borders of Ukraine. Some of those have left, but a lot of those have remained, and there's still a question about what's going on there. But it's not clear where President Zelensky's peace effort goes. It, it doesn't look like the Russians were prepared to respond in kind. Uh, their point man uh, uh, for dealing uh, with the conflict in Donbass spends a lot of his time basically denying that Russia is a party to the conflict. You know, nobody seriously believes that. But then he says, you know, Ukraine has to deal with the so-called officials of what they call the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic. And Ukraine, rightly to my mind, has refused to do that because one, they don't want to legitimize those puppet governments in the Donbass, but also in Kyiv, they correctly understand that the decisions about to end this conflict and the terms of settlement are not going to be made in occupied Donbass. They're going to be made in Moscow. So corruption, 
is a persistent issue that is endemic to Ukraine's politics, uh, with many oligarchs having vast business interests that all too often influence policy. President Volodymyr Zelensky, as another part of his policy goals, has embarked on a sweeping anti-corruption campaign to reduce this influence. Uh, what has he done thus far to rein in this corruption, and how impactful could it be on Ukraine's internal situation? Well, I, I think you know President Zelensky <clears throat> faces two major challenges. How do you resolve the conflict with Russia? And the reality is, you know, he can't not on his own resolve Donbass. Moscow gets a vote. Moscow can veto a settlement. And thus far, it appears to me that Moscow does not want a settlement. Moscow wants to continue to be able to use that conflict in Donbass to put pressure on Kyiv. But the other set of issues that, that President Zelensky faces is are domestic changes, you know, domestic reforms, uh, anti-corruption measures, where the Russians don't get such a vote. And, you know, he started out well in 2019. 2020, unfortunately, I think he went off track when it came to reform. And 2020 was really a lost year. This year in 2021, he seems to be moving back more towards the reform course, I, I think in part under pressure from the fact that if he wants to continue to receive low interest credits from the International Monetary Fund, the International Monetary Fund is saying you need to do certain things which you agreed to do. You actually now have to deliver. But he does seem now to be moving a little bit more forcefully on the oligarch question. So, for example, earlier this year, um, he shut down three television uh, stations, which were pretty much blatant uh, promoters of Russian propaganda. And they all belonged uh, to uh, a guy by the name of Viktor Medvedchuk. Uh, Medvedchuk uh, is closely connected to Russia. Uh, Vladimir Putin is the godfather to one of Mr. Medvedchuk's daughters. <laughs> And uh, you know, he owned these stations and, uh, by all appearances, had a significant say in the editorial content, which was very pro-Russian. And then they have now actually moved even more against Mr. Medvedchuk. Uh, he's put, been charged with a number of things, including treason. And so I, I think we're beginning to see this effort now to come to terms with the oligarchs. In addition to that, President Zelensky has announced a broader effort uh, although we are yet to see the details, to really deal with oligarchs across the board. And I think many who follow Ukraine would agree that you know, it's high time to do something about this. The oligarchs in Ukraine, or most of them, exercise undue political influence. So, for example, another oligarch by the name of Kolomoisky, he's believed to have, you know, or reportedly has bought 30 to 50 members of the parliament. So he has his own little voting block. Uh, and they're using their influence to hinder the sorts of changes that Ukraine needs to really developing a flourishing economy because those sorts of changes may impact uh, negatively uh, the interests of the oligarchs. So uh, I, I am hopeful that we see by Mr. Zelensky a serious effort to really come to terms with this. And it doesn't mean completely stripping uh, the oligarchs of their power, but it means reducing them to sort of normal large business people who cannot exercise the kind of influence politically that they have over the last 30 years, which has held Ukraine back. And we'll have to see whether Mr. Zelensky can sustain this campaign. Uh, he's taking on some very strong vested interests. Uh, it's something that none of his predecessors have really been able to come to terms with. And he has to also, I think, do it in a very careful way. 
because it can't be just a campaign against those oligarchs who uh, are working against his political interests. You know, he's got to basically apply uh, an approach that deals with all oligarchs based upon you know, how they behave. And that'll be a test. And we'll have to see uh, how he uh, manages that. So this conflict in Ukraine and Russia's annexation of Crimea have consistently remained major sticking points between the West and Russia. So what role has the United States and NATO really played in this conflict? Yeah, well, let let me break the United States and NATO out into into sort of separate players. And then I'll also bring in the European Union. I mean, the United States uh, has increasingly sided with Ukraine on this. And in part, this goes back to 1994. When the Soviet Union collapsed, Ukraine had on its territory the world's third largest nuclear arsenal after Russia and the United States. And the bulk of that arsenal was strategic uh, warheads for intercontinental ballistic missiles and for heavy bombers. These were weapons that were designed, built, and deployed to strike the United States. And the United States worked with Russia and Ukraine in the early 90s basically to persuade Ukraine to give up that nuclear arsenal. And over the course of several years, an agreement was worked out whereby Ukraine sent the warheads back to Russia where the warheads were dismantled. And then the U.S. The United States provided uh, assistance basically to help the Ukrainians dismantle the missiles and the bombers and the missile silos and all of the infrastructure. I think it was about $700 million by the time the program came to an end. A very good investment, by the way, for $700 million we eliminated almost 2,000 strategic nuclear warheads that were targeted at one point at the United States. But as part of that arrangement, one of the things that uh, was key to Ukraine's decision to finally give up all the weapons was the Budapest Memorandum that was signed by the United States, Russia, Great Britain, and Ukraine in December of 1994. And in that agreement, the United States, Britain, and Russia committed to respect Ukraine's sovereignty, territorial integrity, and independence, committed not to use force against Ukraine or even to use for, or even to threaten to use force against Ukraine. And these are commitments that Russia has all grossly violated. Now, the agreement was called the uh, Agreement on Security Assurances for Ukraine. And this was a very technical but important point. When we negotiated this, and I was involved in that when I was still in the State Department, we told the Ukrainians it could not be a memorandum of security guarantees because to official American ears, a security guarantee is what NATO has. That is, if there's an invasion of a NATO territory, we're committed to send American military force to the defense. We were not prepared to make that commitment to Ukraine in the early 1990s. So we said assurances, which means we're going to take an interest, we're going to care, but you need to understand that we're not going to send American troops. And I think the Budapest Memorandum was one reason why we've gotten involved in, in the last seven years on Ukraine's side, because Russia has violated that. And in 1994, we told the Ukrainians that if something like this happened, we would care, we would take an interest. And so the United States has provided economic support, but also military support, military assistance at the rate of about $300 million a year. And over the last several years, that has included some lethal military assistance, uh, primarily uh, man portable anti-armor weapons to fill a niche where the Russia, the Ukrainians really had no capability. So that, that's been a fair amount of U.S. support. It's been political. Uh, when he was vice president, uh, 
Mr. Biden went to uh, Ukraine a number of times, including after the, the conflict broke out between Russia and Ukraine in early 2014. And a lot of that was to demonstrate American support for Ukraine. Um, the United States, uh, with regards to NATO, I mean, NATO has not done similar things as an institution, but individual NATO members have done things for Ukraine. So the United States has a small contingent in Western Ukraine at a place called Yavari. That's as far as you, West, and you can be in Ukraine and still be in Ukraine and not be in Poland. So it's on the other side of the country from the fighting in Donbass. But they, there's an American army contingent there that's been training Ukrainians for a number of years. Uh, the British and the Canadians have also sent in trainers. Uh, some NATO allies individually have also provided military assistance to Ukraine, including lethal military assistance. But that's not done by NATO per se. Where the, Europe and the United States work closely together, though, is through the European Union. And that goes back to 2014, where the United States and the Europeans have applied a number of economic sanctions on Russia and a number of visa sanctions, though there are a large number of Russian individuals who cannot travel in Europe or the United States. If they had assets in the West, those assets would have been blocked or frozen. But also there have been other sanctions that have targeted things like um, financial interests uh, that have targeted the energy sector. So, for example, uh, one sanction prohibits uh, provision of either financing or Western technology for development of new oil fields in Russia. And that doesn't have much impact now, but as Russia depletes its current oil fields, it's going to slow down their ability to basically bring online replacements. Now, the economic sanctions, by some estimates, cost the Russian economy about 1% of gross domestic product per year. And in an economy that's growing at only about one and a half percent per year, that, that's a pretty major impact. The sanctions have not yet persuaded the Russians to reverse course and either settle in Donbass or let alone return Crimea. But I do think that they do have an impact on Russian thinking. Uh, the Russians waste few opportunities to call for the elimination of the sanctions. And they may have served as a deterrent effect in keeping the Russians from doing something militarily that would have been much greater. Uh, so I, I think that that set of sanctions does have some impact. It hasn't affected the calculation of costs and benefits in the Kremlin sufficiently yet to get them to settle in Donbass, but it's perhaps stopped the Russians from doing other things that would have been even more difficult for Ukraine. To wrap us up, what are the conflict's implications for Ukraine's future place in Europe? And do you see this as a test for Ukraine's democracy? Yeah, I, I think this is a very difficult test for Ukraine's democracy, first of all. You know, part of the problem that Ukraine, I think, has now is the ideal Russian goal for Ukraine would to pull, be to pull Ukraine back into Moscow's sphere of influence. After the, seven, the last seven years, I don't see that happening. Uh, I mean, there, there's just been... You know, too many bad feelings, 14,000 people killed, you know, two to two and a half million people either have left Donbass as internally displaced persons in Ukraine or refugees elsewhere. Uh, and, and I think Russian policy over the past seven years has actually been a strategic failure in the sense that it's pushed Ukraine towards the West. Uh, when I served as ambassador in Kiev in the late 1990s, I would say that there was a relatively small percentage of Ukrainians 
who really disliked, detested Russia. And these were Ukrainian nationalists, mainly in the western part of the country. But for the bulk of Ukrainians, they either were indifferent, they were ambivalent about Russia, or they actually were well disposed towards Russia. That's changed. Uh, I recall when I visited Kyiv in uh, September of 2014, so this was after the conflict in Donbass had been going for a number of months, well after um, the Russians had seized Crimea, and a Ukrainian friend said, you know, Vladimir Putin has succeeded where centuries of Ukrainian nationalists failed. He's built a Ukrainian national identity, and he's imbued it with a strong anti-Russian sentiment. So I think this is the problem, that the Russians, on the one hand, want to bring Ukraine back into their sphere of influence, but their actions have pushed Ukraine further away. And to the extent that I think they recognize that in Moscow, their policy now is basically to prevent Ukraine from being a success story. And that's one of the real challenges for Ukraine in that the Russians or the Kremlin, I believe, fear a successful Ukraine. And when I talk about a successful Ukraine, you know, it's not just a democracy. And you know, Ukraine's democracy is not, is not perfect, but it's a pluralistic system. There are real politics there. There are real clashes of interests. But if they can solidify that democracy and then build a robust market economy that's growing living standards for people, and beginning to sort of develop the, 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 the country's resilience, I think the Russian or the Kremlin fears that because if they see a successful Ukraine that's an economic success as well as a democratic success on the Russian border, the Kremlin fears that Russians will start saying, why can't we in Russia have the same political space that they have in Ukraine? You know, why can't we in Russia have elections that matter? Uh, you know, why can't we have a, a parliament in which there is a real debate, not just rubber stamps of whatever the Kremlin proposes. And so this is one of the things that makes this conflict for Ukraine more difficult, is it's not just about a Russian sphere of influence or where Ukraine fits in Europe, but it's also about domestic politics. And from the point of view of the Kremlin, it's also about regime survival. So I, I think this that, that makes it a very complicated thing to resolve. I don't, unfortunately, see a settlement in the near term uh, because up till now, it seems to me that the Kremlin has calculated that sustaining that conflict, using that conflict in Donbass to put pressure on the government key, that the benefits of that in terms of disruption in Ukraine outweigh the costs in terms of the, any political isolation or in terms of the economic sanctions they face. And so the question is, how do we get to a settlement on boss really boils down to, are there things that Ukraine and the West can do helping Ukraine to change that cost-benefit calculation in the Kremlin? And unfortunately, that doesn't appear doable in the near term. Great. Thank you very much, Ambassador Pfeiffer, for your time today. Happy to talk with you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.